أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سلم كثيرا The title of the talk is إذا أراد الله أمرا هي له أسبابه If Allah عز وجل wants an end He will create for it its means And this title is taken from the book on history Al-Kamil by Ibn Al-Athir If Allah عز وجل wants an end he will create for it the means that would lead towards that end. If Allah Azawajal wants victory for the Ummah, and that's really the point that we're going to be talking about. If Allah Azawajal wants victory for the Ummah, then Allah Azawajal will create the circumstances for that. So you can sense if victory is coming by looking at what is happening today. If we establish that this rule is correct, then we would be able to prove whether the end is on its way or not. Now in general, the issue of victory, Allah Azzawajal has promised in the Quran and Rasulullah has promised in the Hadith that eventually this Ummah will be victorious. And this should be an issue of Yaqeen for all of us. When I say Yaqeen, it means it's something like a Aqeedah for us. As a Muslim, you need to believe that this Ummah will be victorious. If you don't believe that, then there's a problem in your iman. Why? Because the dalil is so strong to establish this point. We go through some of the adillah. Allah Azza for example, says, وَلَقَدْ كَتَبْنَا فِي الزَّبُورِ مِنْ بَعْدِ أَنَّ الْأَرْضَ يَرِثُهَا عِبَادِيَ صَالِحُ And Allah Azza says, And we have already written in the book, after the previous mention, that the land is inherited by my righteous servants. So eventually, my righteous servants will inherit the land. Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَلَقَدْ سَبَقَتْ كَلِمَتُنَا لِعِبَادِنَا الْمُرْسَلِينَ إِنَّهُمْ لَهُمُ الْمَنْصُورُونَ وَإِنَّا جُنْدَنَا لَهُمُ الْغَالِبُونَ And our word has already preceded for our servants, the messengers, that indeed they would be those given victory. So Allah Azza wa Jal promised the Anbiya al-Mursaleen that he would give them victory. And Allah Azza wa Jal says, إِنَّ الْأَرْضَ لِلَّهِ يُورِثُهَا مَنْ يَشَاءُ مِنْ عِبَادِه and eventually victory uh, Earth belongs to Allah and He will inherit it to whomever He wills of His servants So He could give it to the kafir and He could give it to believer But then Allah says But eventually The earth will be inherited by the believers By the mu'minun And Allah says يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا نُورَ اللَّهِ بِأَفْوَاهِهِمْ they want to extinguish the light of Allah with their mouths, but Allah will perfect His light, although the disbelievers dislike it. Now what the disbelievers are trying to do is to extinguish the light of Allah. The light of Allah is Islam. The light of Allah is the Risala of Muhammad What they're trying to do is to stop the flow of Islam. That's what they're trying to do. Allah says they will fail. They will fail. Sometimes when we look at the amount of money they're spending on fighting Islam, it's amazing. And you think about how much Allah has given them, how many resources are under their hands, and they're spending all of this to fight Islam. Sometimes we complain and say, look, they control the media. They control every powerful newspaper in the world. They control every powerful radio station in the world. They control every powerful media outlet on the planet. They control the governments. They control the police forces and the entire planet. 
They have all of this money. We have no chance in fighting them. Let's just give up and try to use alternative means of dealing with them. Let's not collide face to face because there's no way we could be equal to them. Let's try to use politics. Let's try to use diplomatic means in trying to fight them. But then Allah Azza wa Jalla says, فَسَيُنْفِقُونَ ثُمَّ تَكُونُوا عَلَيْهِمْ حَسْرَةً ثُمَّ يَغْلَبُونَ Allah Azza wa Jalla says, they're spending their money to fight my religion. They will spend it, Allah says they will spend it, and then they will be defeated. So let them spend their money because that's how they will be defeated. Allah Azza wa Jalla says they need to spend it first. And after that they will be defeated. So we should be happy that they're spending their money to fight Islam because that means that victory is soon, it's on its way. They will spend it, and that money that was spent will be hasra. They will regret it, and then they will be defeated. Now they're already talking about how this war in Iraq and Afghanistan is going to cost them more than the Vietnam War and the Korean War. If I remember the numbers correct, the Vietnam War, the Korean War cost $200 trillion, and then... Uh, or billion dollars, and then the uh, Vietnam War cost 400, and this current war is running, it would probably cost them 800 billion dollars. Probably it's going to cost even more. The way it's going, the way things are going now, they're going to bleed to death. The economy will bleed to death. So it's exactly following the ayah. They're going to spend the money, and they're going to regret it, because they invited this trouble. This war in Iraq and Afghanistan was not forced on them. They chose this battle. So they will regret putting themselves into this trouble, spending all of their money, going broke, and then being defeated. Just like Abu Jahl is the one who chose to meet the Muslims in Badr. Because the Muslims went out in Badr for what purpose? To pursue the caravan. The caravan was safe. The caravan was safe. Abu Sufyan sent a letter to Abu Jahl telling them that, go back, go back to Mecca. The caravan is safe. I was able to evade the Muslims. Abu Sufyan was able to get away. And he sent a letter to Abu Jahl, who was now the head of the army, telling him, go back, take our men back to Mecca. There's no purpose in fighting the Muslims now. The caravan is safe. Abu Jahl said, no, we're going to go and fight them. We're going to go to Badr. And we're going to party there for three days. We're going to drink wine. And women are going to sing for us. And we want all of the Arabs to hear about our expedition and to know that Quraysh cannot be humiliated. We want people to know about our Masir. So we're going to party there for three days so that the news will spread all over Arabia for people to know not to play with Quraysh again. So he is the one who chose that battle. He is the one who went to it. And this same thing is happening now to America. They have chosen this battle. And the end result of it is already known because Rasulullah says in the Hadith Al-Qudasi, Man li waliyan faqad Whoever takes my awliya as enemies, I will wage war against them. So now it's not the Muslims waging war against America, it's Allah Azza wa Jal. America is in a state of war with Allah Azza wa Jal. مَنْ عَادَ لِي وَلِيًّا فَقَدْ آذَنْتُهُ بِالْحَرْبِ وَعَدَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَأَسْتَخْلِفَنَّهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَيَمَكَّنَنَّ لَهُمْ دِينَهُمْ الَّذِي اتَّضَى لَهُمْ وَلَيَبَدِّلَ Allah says, Allah has promised those who have believed among you and done righteous deeds that he will surely grant them succession to authority upon earth. Khilafah will be to those Just as he granted it to those before them, 
and that he will surely establish for them therein their religion which he has preferred for them and that he will surely substitute them after their fear security. Muslims are now in a state of fear. Allah is promising us that he will give us security. Amen. For they worship me, not associating anything with me, but whoever disbelieves after that, then those are defiantly disobedient. Allah Azza has promised this Ummah Khilafah. Allah Azza has promised this Ummah Amin. Allah Azza has promised that his religion will be established. These are promises, clear promises from Allah Azza So these are some ayat. Let's look at the ahadith. Rasulullah says, ثم تكون خلافة راشدة فتكون فيكم ما شاء الله أن تكون ثم ينزعها الله إذا شاء أن ينزعها ثم تكون ملكا عاضا فتكون فيكم ما شاء الله أن تكون ثم ينزعها الله إذا شاء أن ينزعها ثم تكون ملكا جبريا فتكون فيكم ما شاء الله أن تكون ثم ينزعها الله إذا شاء أن ينزعها ثم تكون خلافة على منهاج النبوة صلى الله عليه وسلم says in the hadith that uh, you must be aware of which talks about the stages of our history First, it will start with prophethood. It will stay with you until Allah Azzawajal wills, and then Allah Azzawajal will take it away. And then it will be khilafah, rashidah, guided, righteous, khilafah. And it will stay with you until Allah wills, and then He will take it away. And then it will be mulkan abban, kingdom. And it will remain with you until Allah wills, and then He will take it away. And then it will be mulkan jabriyan, dictatorship. It will stay with you until Allah wills, and then He will take it away. And then it will be khilafah that will follow the way of prophethood. Prophethood, which is the beginning of the hadith, ended by the death of Muhammad The next stage is Khilafah Rashidah. And this is from Abu Bakr to Ali. And then it will be Mulkan, Kingdom, which is the Banu Umayyah, Banu Abbas, and Al-Khilafah Al-Uthmaniyah. And then after that it will be dictatorship, which we are living under today. Oppressive rule, which we are living under today. And after that it will be what? Khilafah. You know, sometimes we complain about our time. We say, man, we're living in the worst time. The Ummah is weak, the Ummah is defeated, the Ummah is disunited. I wish I was living in the time of a Sahaba, or I wish I was living in the time of the heroic Islamic eras. The Tabi'een said to one of the Sahaba, how did you treat Rasulullah when he was among you? So the Sahabi talked about how we used to treat him, and then he said we would try to do our best. The Tabi'i responded by saying, if he lived in our time, we would have carried him on our shoulders. What the Tabi'i was trying to say is that you didn't treat him good enough. If he was living with us, we would have been better to him than you. The Sahabi responded by saying, and I don't remember the exact wording, but the meaning of it is that you never know what you would have done if you lived then. We were fighting our fathers and brothers. We were fighting our fathers and brothers. It wasn't an easy thing. Now your father is Muslim and your brother is Muslim and your whole entire family is Muslim so you imagine that you're going to treat Rasulullah in a certain way. When he came and gave da'wah to us, my father was kafir, I was mu'min. My brother was kafir, I was mu'min. So I had to fight my family. So it wasn't an easy thing. So do not wish, do not ask for something that Allah didn't destine for you. This is number one. Number two, when I'm talking about, you know, we shouldn't complain about our time. Number two. We shouldn't be complaining about this time. We should be grateful to Allah that we're living in these days. Why? If you look at the status of the Sahaba, it's the highest status among the Muslim Ummah. They are the highest, they are the best, they are the greatest. And then the Tabi'een, and then the 
ones who came after them. If we ask the question why, how come the Sahaba were the best? Some of the reasons, the Sahaba built Islam from scratch. The Sahaba came and there was nothing. So the Sahaba established the foundation. They established the foundation of the deen. While anybody who came after them came and the, the building was already there, they just added some pieces here and there. They, uh, something was broken so they fixed it. No bid'ah, so they fixed it. But the foundation was already laid by the Sahaba And this makes them the best generation because their job was the most difficult job. And it's important for us to realize what is the demand of our time so that we fulfill it. Because the things that a tabi'in emphasized on, for example, might be different than the things that the tabi'in at tabi'in emphasized on. Uh, let me give an example to make this point clear. If al-Bukhari came a hundred years later and did the same thing, he wouldn't have had the same status that he has among us now. If Imam al-Shafi'i came a hundred years later and did the same thing he did then, he wouldn't have had the same status that he has among us now. Why? Because the needs were different from time to time. You would notice that the four Imams of Fiqh lived within the same century. And the six Imams of Hadith also lived during the same century. So that tells you that the need in one time was Fiqh and the need in the other time was Hadith. I'm saying this because if we try to, if we want to serve Islam the best now, we need to understand what is needed now. We find that some brothers would go and emphasize on da'wah, while some brothers would go and emphasize on ilm, while some brothers would emphasize on this. We need to emphasize on these areas, we need to emphasize on every area, but we also need to ask ourselves the question, what is the thing that is needed most in our time today? We would find that it's quite similar to the time of the Sahaba, because now we have reached to the lowest level we have reached in 14 centuries. So our time now, which we are complaining about, is the most similar time to the Sahaba. It's not exactly the same, but it's the most similar among all the generations of Muslims to the time of the Sahaba. Why? Because when the Sahaba came, there was no Islamic authority, and there's no Islamic authority today. And this wasn't the case for 1400 years. When the Sahaba came, they were fought by the entire surrounding. The two superpowers, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, and all of the Arabs around them were against them. And this is similar to our situation today. And this wasn't the case in our history before. In our history before, you would find an Islamic authority. In our history before, you would find people to assist you in al-Haqq. There is a place to make hijrah to. Now you find that the entire globe is waging a war against you, and that is also similar to the time of the Sahaba. Which means, the consequence of this, is that the ajr of the people today could be very great. We're not going to say equal to the ajr of the Sahaba, but it's going to be very great. And that's why Rasulullah has mentioned in his hadith that even though the best generation is a Sahaba and then the Tabi'een and then the Tabi'een and Tabi'een but he said that there will be a generation of people in the end of time the ajr of one of them will be equal to the ajr of 50. So the Sahaba said 50 of us or 50 of them Rasulullah says 50 of you. So the Salah will be like the Salah of 50 Sahaba. You fast one day it will be like the fasting of 50 Sahaba. 
the ajr is multiplied by 50. Why? Because of the difficulty of that time. We notice that Rasulullah said that towards the end of time, there will be people that will be among the greatest of this ummah. Rasulullah says in the hadith, يَخْرِجْ مِنْ عَدَنَ أَبِيَانْ إِثْنَا عَشْرَ أَلْفِ يُنْصُرُونَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُمْ خَيْرٌ مَنْ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَهُمْ Out of Adan Abiyan will come out 12,000. They will give victory to the religion of Allah. And they will be the best between me and them. They are the best between Rasulullah and between that time. So you can wrap all of these centuries and they will be the best. They will be the best. Why? Because their time is similar to the time of the Sahaba. So why complain if you're living in the time of the new gold rush? And this is not a gold rush for gold, but it's a gold rush for hasanat. And there are some times, you know, for example, uh, a, there are some times when the economy is booming so fast that everybody becomes rich. And there are times when things are stagnating and slow. So people who live then say, oh, man, I wish I was living in the time of the boom, I would have been a millionaire. We are living in a time of a boom now. We just need to realize it and realize how much ajr is out there waiting for us if we just go and do something. The ajr is so great, it's just waiting for somebody to do something about it. Because when it comes in a time when everything is easy, then the ajr is reduced. But when things are difficult, when it's a time of usr, difficulty, the ajr is increased. Al-ajr ala qadr al-mashatta. Ajr is in accordance to the difficulty. So why complain about the time when it's really the best time? If we are talking about the time when victory is around the corner, when Rasulullah said they will be the ones who will give victory to Al-Mahdi and give victory to Isa ibn Maryam, if we are close to that time, Allah alam, this is ghayb, but if we're close to that time, then the ajr is astronomical. You can't even imagine how much ajr is out there to be handed out. But the thing is, we don't want to be waiting on the sidelines when all of this is happening. People are going and making millions and you're sitting at home doing nothing. So we shouldn't complain about our time. Rasulullah says, In Allah Zawali al Ard, Faraitu anna mulka ummati sayabluhu mahzuya li minha. Allah Azawajal has shown me the entire earth. And this hadith is Sahih Muslim. Allah has shown me the entire earth. And He told me that the kingdom of my nation will reach to all of it. So this religion will reach to every continent, to every country to every city. The banner of La ilaha illallah will enter into every city. This religion will reach wherever night and day reaches. Is there a place on the planet where night and day doesn't reach? This religion will reach wherever night and day reaches. So you, the kafir, the munafiq, if you want to hide away from this religion, you need to go to Mars or the moon or somewhere else. There will be no place for you on dunya. So, we must all agree that victory is on its way. But the question is when? A month from now, a year from now, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, that's the question. Victory is coming, no doubt. But the question is when? Now, I'm gonna state uh, that, make a claim, and then let's try to prove if it's true or not. The claim is that victory is very soon. So let's now prove this claim or hypothesis and see if it's true or not. And I'm going to use this principle of If Allah wants an end, He will create for it its means. First of all, is this rule 
corrupt or not. Let's look at history. Does Allah really prepare the ground for events? Does Allah really bring circumstances to fulfill an end? There's a hadith in Bukhari, a statement made by Aisha radiallahu anha. She said, كان يوم بعاث يوما قدمه الله لرسوله فقدم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وقد افترق ملأهم وقتلت صرواتهم وجرحوا فقدمه الله لرسوله رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم was making da'wah in Mecca 13 years he reached to a dead end now رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم was trying to find an alternative he went to a ta'if they turned him down every year in al-mawsim in the time of hajj he would present himself to the tribes and ask them for a specific thing. Give me support. So that I can convey the message from my Lord. I want you to provide me with support so that I can convey the message of Allah. And they were turning him down. Now, Allah Azza wa Jal wanted this ajr to go to someone else. He wanted it to go to Al Aus wal Khazraj al Ansar. So, how did it happen? Aisha radiallahu anha said, she talked about a battle called Ba'ath. Now, Al-Aws wal Khazraj were locked into this feudal war that was endless. They would wake up in the morning, go and fight, go back at home at night, wake up the next day in the morning and go and fight. That was their life. And after a while, this gets to you, you know, you could have the courage and the emotional high to go and fight a day, but for this to carry on for years, after a while, it wears you down. Yes, you could be a tough fighter. Yes, you could be yani, a warrior. Yes, you could sacrifice your money. You could sacrifice your children for this. But when is it going to end? And for what? So this was getting beyond what they were able to withstand. Then you had this battle called Bu'af. This battle between Al-Aws and Al-Khazraj. Aisha radiallahu anha said, كان يوم بعاف يوم قدمه الله لرسوله the day of Ba'ath was a day Allah has given as a gift for Muhammad Rasulullah had nothing to do with Ba'ath. It was in Medina. He had nothing to do with Medina then. So what was this day of Ba'ath? Ba'ath was a day when the two tribes fought and the leadership of both tribes were massacred in that day. The leaders of both tribes, Al-Aws and Khazraj, were taken out on that day. فَقَدِمَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَقَدْ افْتَرَقَ مَلَأَهُمْ So when Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم went to them, their mala' iftaraq. Al-mala' is the leadership. So the leadership was gone. وَقُتِلَتْ سَرَوَاتُهُمْ And the heads of the people were killed. وَجُرِحُوا And they were injured. فَقَدَّمَهُ اللَّهُ لِرَسُولِهِ If you notice throughout your reading in Quran that the ones who stand against the Anbiya are who? It's a class of people given a title in Quran and that is Al-Mala. They're named in Quran Al-Mala. Who are Al-Mala? Al-Mala are the leadership. The political leadership, they could be the economical leadership, they could be the media leadership, they could be the social leadership. It is these people who stand against the Anbiya. Why? Because they are the ones who feel that they would lose at any change to the status quo. These leaders are the ones who are benefiting from the status quo and they don't want any change to it. So they resist the da'wah of the Anbiya because they know that the Anbiya are coming to strip them from their power and give the power to the Book of Allah. So now you all become equal. 
And the Khalifa among you is only appointed to establish the rule of Allah, not to establish his own personal interests. So Abu Bakr and Umar is not there for his own benefit. He is there to establish the book of Allah Azza wa Jal. And that is why he is called Mas'ul, a person who is asked. The word Mas'ul in Arabic means a person who will be asked on the Day of Judgment. That position of responsibility puts you in the status or place where you will be questioned by Allah on the Day of Judgment. So it's a place where nobody wants to be in. That's why the Khulafa had to be forced into that position. Abu Bakr wanted to give bay'ah to Umar. Umar was handed the Khilafah by Abu Bakr by force. And then the people were telling Abdullah ibn Umar to take it. Umar ibn Khattab told his son, I don't want two of my family to be held in this position on the Day of Judgment. Your father is enough. Why have my son put him to this position of trouble on the Day of Judgment? So they are the ones who stand against Islam. Who are they? The Al-Mala. Al-Mala are the ones who stand. It is Fir'aun, Qarun. These are the people who stand. So Abu Jahl. Abu Lahab, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, Abu Sufyan, these are people who are benefiting money from the status quo, they're benefiting position, they're benefiting fame, they're benefiting respect, so they are the ones who stand to lose. Because in reality, even if people think they are free, they're not free. If you are living under a man-made system, you are not free. And that is why when Rib'i ibn Amr went to the leader of the Persians and the leader of the Persians told him, why are you coming to our land? If you're coming for money, we're going to pay every one of you a salary and leave us alone. He said, that's not why we're here. We are sent to free the creation from being slaves to one another to being slaves of Allah. We want to free you from being slaves to the creation to being slaves of the creator of the creation. And from the oppression of religion to the justice of Islam. So Rabi'i ibn Amr, he wasn't a student of religion. He wasn't a student of comparative religion. He didn't go to college and study religions. Nevertheless, he's saying that all religion are zulm. Because he didn't need to learn about religion. He knows from wahi that every religion, even if I don't know what it is, is an oppressive religion. And the only religion that will offer you with justice is Islam. And we're taking the people from the oppression of religion to the justice of Islam. And we want to deliver people from the narrowness of this world to the vastness of this world and the afterlife. So Yom Ba'ath was a preparation. The leadership was gone. And that's why when the men from Al-Ansar went to Hajj and they heard about Muhammad Sallallahu What did they say? They said, let's take this man to our land. May Allah unite us through him. They were lost. They lost the leadership. And SubhanAllah, humanity without leadership cannot survive. And humanity needs a leadership in, in good or in evil. And that's why the camp of Ar-Rahman has a leadership and the camp of Ash-Shaytan has a leadership. All of them have leaders. That's our nature. We have to have a head. We have to have somebody to show us the way. So the Ansar were lost now. And they were saying, may Allah unite us through this man. Also another form of preparation was that they were neighbors of the Jews. So they knew that there was a prophet coming. Unlike the rest of the Arabs who didn't know anything about prophethood, the Ansar used to hear the Jews tell them 
a prophet will be sent among us and then we will kill you like Ad was killed. The Jews were threatening the Ansar, telling them, just wait until the prophet comes and we're going to wipe you out. It goes the other way around. Isn't this preparation for an end? Allah Azawajal wanted Al-Ansar to become Muslim and he wanted them to give support to Muhammad So history was preparing them. The Ansar were fighting that day and Ba'ath having no clue that this day would be the day that would bring them close to Islam. It was a war in Jahiliyyah, but it was bringing them closer to Allah Another example, Umar al-Khattab sent an army to fight against the Persian Empire. In that army, the leader of the army, the Muslim army, Abu Ubaid al-Thaqafi was very courageous. However, he has taken more risk than he should and that led to a defeat for the Muslims in the battle of Al-Jisr. Half of the entire Muslim army in Persia was killed on that day. Half of the army that is in Persia was wiped out. So now it's the golden opportunity for the Persian Empire to take out the rest. You know, 50% of your army is gone. So now they thought that the tide was turning in their favor and now they're going to kick the Muslims out for good. And the Muslims are going to lose all of the ground that they have conquered so far. Mahmoud Shakir, the author of Tariq al-Islami said, وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ هَذَا فِي الْمُؤْمِنَةِ But Allah is with the believers. If the believers fulfill the requirements of victory, they're going to get victory one way or the other. If they have weapons, if they don't, if they have the nuclear bomb, if they don't, if they have thousands of soldiers, if they don't, these are not the issues that matter. If you fulfill the requirements of Iman, then Allah will give you a victory because Allah said, Allah is the protector of the believers. Not the ones who have a lot of weapons, not the ones who have a lot of numbers. It is the ones who have Iman. That is the condition that is needed. So even though it looked that the Muslims are going to lose, but subhanAllah, Allah created the means towards the end. فكلما وقع المسلمون الصادقون في مأزق حرج قيض الله لهم الأسباب الخروج منه. So whenever the Muslims get into trouble, Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who delivers them out of it. What happened is, in the Persian capital, the two main leaders started fighting with each other. Half of the army broke with Rustam and the other half went with Fayruzan. So the general who was appointed to fight the Muslims was recalled back to the capital to go and solve this dispute. So the Muslims who are, were in danger of being wiped out permanently are now alone sitting there and this gave the Khalifa enough time to send in reinforcement and to carry on the fight. And this dispute happened at the exact moment that was needed because Allah wanted this land to be opened. So even though the tide was turning against the Muslims, Allah gave them victory. A third example from the Crusades. Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi started out by uniting the Muslims around the Holy Land. And he decided to do what many of the Amirs before him were too afraid to do, and that is to start war with the Crusaders. Because now the Crusaders have already occupied the entire coastal land along with Jerusalem and some important areas in Asham. So Salah al-Din instigated this fight and uh, Salah al-Din was taken seriously by Europe. 
they knew that this is not a, a simple leader, that Salah ad-Din is up to something. The Muslim Amirs were telling Salah ad-Din, you're crazy. Arum Bahrun la sahalallah. What are you what are you crazy? What are you trying to do? You're starting out a war with a room. And they said, Arum Bahrun la sahalallah. It's a sea without any shore. You know, as far as you can see, that's a room. In other words, what they're saying is that they're going to send us a flood. Because Europe was united, the population was huge, and they're going to be fighting a disunited Ummah. You know, Salah al-Din was fighting with part of the Ummah, not the entire Ummah. And the Ummah was shattered at that time. So Salah al-Din was going to be fighting, the united, was going to be fighting with a united Europe. And he is leading an army that is very modest. So the Amirs were telling him, you're crazy, you've lost your mind. Who are you trying to, trying to start war with? You can go and fight your Muslim neighbor, yeah, that's fine, but fight the room. He had tawakkul on Allah Azza wa and he went ahead with it, and he started attacking them and taking away land from them. So now the Pope started mobilizing Europe for a new crusade, the fourth crusade. And this was going to be the largest. Because it's against who? It's against Salah al-Din. And you can see the importance Europe is giving this crusade by knowing who's going to lead it. You know, if you're going to send a small general to lead it, then that means that they're not really taking it seriously. But who was leading this crusade? It was led by the King of England, the King of France, and the King of Germany. They themselves are going to go out and fight in Palestine. They're not going to appoint their generals to go. They would lead the armies themselves. The King of England, Richard Lionheart, and we're not talking about any king, we're talking about Richard Lionheart. And the King of France and the King of Germany, Frederick Barbarossa. Barbarossa means red beard. These three kings are going to lead the crusade. Because these kings are going to go out, the size of the army was huge compared to the standard of that time. Some sources mentioned that the army of Frederick Barbarossa alone was 300,000. And in those days, this number is a number that uh, people would hear and they would collapse and out of fear. 300,000 just fall down dead. Now the army is so huge, the entire European navy and merchant ships were not sufficient to carry it. So the army of France and the army of England went by sea, but the army of the King of Germany had to go by land, because it was too huge. Now, let's take a look at what our scholars said about this. Ibn al-Athir said, So they came to us on land and on sea. And Ibn Kathir says, بأن ملك الألمان قد أقبل بثلاثمائة ألف مقاتل من ناحية القسطنطينية يريد أخذ الشام وقتل أهله وانتصارا لبيت المقدس فعند ذلك حمل السلطان والمسلمون هما عظيما وخافوا غاية الخوف ابن كثير says the news spread among the Muslims that the German king is coming at an army of 300,000 strong and is approaching from the north and then he said فحمل السلطان the Muslim Sultan, Salah al-Din, and the Muslims were concerned. And they were, and he said, fear was getting to them. People were afraid. There's an army of 300,000. 
These are the words of Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir says, and I want you to think about this point a little bit. He says, تَجَهَّزَ جَمَاعَةٌ مِّنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ وَغَيْرُهُمْ لِلْخُرُوجِ إِلَى الشَّامِ رَغْبَةً فِي الْجِهَادِ ثُمَّ رَجَعَ كَثِيرٌ مِّنْهُمْ حِينَ بَلَغَهُمْ كَثْرَةُ الْفِرِنْجِ Ibn Kathir says, many of the scholars prepared themselves to go out and fight to a sham رَغْبَةً فِي الْجِهَادِ for love of jihad, but then many of them went back when they heard the numbers of Al-Fringe. Why did they go back? Does the fiqh change when the numbers are more? They went out to fight jihad fi sabillah and then they came back. And these are ulama. I think there's a point to make on the statement that ulama are not infallible. Ulama are not anbiya. So if people are going to blindly follow al-ulama, there's no guarantee they'll take them to the right path. And I'm not generalizing about ulama, I'm saying that because Ibn Kathir says some of them went back. There will always be in this ummah, always, a ta'ifah, a ta'ifah that's carrying the right manhaj, always. But what is happening is sometimes people try to find a way out of responsibility and they would hang it on al-ulama. This alim did not give this fatwa. This alim did not tell us to fight jihad fi sabillah. They would, they would blame it on al-ulama. When there are ulama who are telling you otherwise. There are ulama who are telling you to do the right thing. There are ulama who are carrying the right manhaj. They might be in jail. They might be killed. They might be underground. They might not be famous because no TV station would broadcast their khutbah. But they are ulama. Another issue is that you know, we're living in an interesting time when the ilm of a person is in accordance to how famous he is. And that's not a right standard. That's not the correct standard for ilm. And in the time of the early ulama, a alim would be considered a alim by the testimony of ulama. This alim would give him tazkiyah. He would say, yes, he's a alim. His teacher would give him tazkiyah. He would say, yes, he's a alim. And then they would have a seat for the fatwa and that would be given to the alim whom most of the ulama think is the most knowledgeable. But now, it is the government who appoints the alim. And then he becomes a alim suddenly. Why? Because the government appointed him. Not because the ulama said he's a alim, but because he was given this position by the government. And he becomes a alim because he's shown on many satellite channel, TV channels, and because he's given a special slot on the radio station, he suddenly becomes a alim. This is not the correct standard for alim. We need to follow al-haq, wherever it is. So Ibn Kathir says these ulama ran away. When they heard that the fringe are many, they ran away. They just left and went away. And because he's a alim, he's going to find an excuse for it. He's going to find a dalil. Because he's a alim, he'll know how to twist the hadith or twist the ayah and make it sound as if this is the sharia thing to do. It's not that he's afraid. Will he go to the people and say, listen, I'm a coward, so sorry, I can't go ahead with this. No, he's going to say, it's not hikmah. There's no hikmah in this. Salah ad-Din is insane. He lost his mind. We told him not to do this and he went ahead and did it. They're going to say Salah ad-Din doesn't have any ilm. He can't even speak Arabic, right? He's a Kurd. He doesn't even know Arabic. So who is he to give fatwa and to take this ummah into this trouble and, and lead them into this disaster by fighting al-Fringe? And he needs to go and follow the ulama and take the fatwa from us. But he didn't. He didn't listen to us. So let him go and die. So they ran away. So what happened? It's a test from Allah for the Ummah. It's a test for the Ulama, it's a test for Salah ad-Din, it's a test for the Ummah. The armies were approaching. So the test was there. 
Some of the Muslims are going to be steadfast and some of them will run away. Just like it was with Musa and Bani Israel when they reached to a dead end, when the sea was in front of them. And it was a test for the Ummah. Allah did not, did not want to destroy the Mu'mineen. Allah wanted to test them. Musa reached to a dead end. The sea was in front of him and Fir'aun was behind him. So Bani Israel came to Musa and said, you lied to us. You told us that Allah is going to save us. You told us that Allah is going to protect us. And here we are facing death. The sea is ahead of us. Fir'aun is behind us. There's no way out. What did Musa say? Kalla, inna ma'ya rabbi sayyadi. No, what you're saying is wrong. Allah is with me and he will guide me. I disbelieve my eyes when they tell me that I would lose. The sea is in front of me and Fir'aun is behind me. I disbelieve my ears that are only hearing these words from Bani Israel that you lie to us. And I believe my heart. I believe my iman. Allah promised me and he will fulfill his promise. So now the test was over. Allah told him to strike the sea with his stick. It showed who will be steadfast and who will not. Same thing now in the time of Salah Adin, it was a test. 300,000 are marching with Frederick Barbarossa, what happens? They reach to a stream, a river. There are different narrations on what exactly happened. One of them is that the water in the stream was extremely cold. Probably it's because it was from snow melting on snow peaks. And we're talking about July, midsummer, so the weather was very hot. They have a difference between temperature of the water and the air. The, the climate was, temperature was very hot and the Water was very cold. Frederick Barbarossa was a very old man. He was in his 70s and he was leading this army. He was covered in armor from head to toe. And they, they wouldn't fight like the Muslims in light armor. Uh, just like Allah said, They do not fight you except if they are behind fortresses. So this fortress could be a castle or it could be armor. This, the moment you take him out of that cockpit or out of that armor or out of that trench, خلاص, he's gone with it. And that's why Ibn Qayyim says that the Sahaba, their bodies were not larger than their enemies of the Persians or Romans. Their training was not more. Their armor was not better. Their weapons were not more. But he said, But their enemy, their hearts would fail them when they need their hearts most. So the Sahaba had hearts. Well, the enemy did not have that heart. Their hearts would fail them. He has all of this armor. He has the weapons. He has the training. He has the army. He has everything. He has all the means to victory, but he doesn't have the heart. So anyway, Frederick Barbarossa, on his horse, is crossing the stream. Somehow, something spooked his horse. So Frederick Barbarossa falls in the water and has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> Frederick Barbarossa is now dead for no apparent logical reason. He just died. And that's why I have different narrations. Heart attack, the weather was, there was a big difference in temperature. You know, all of the uh, scholars, Western scholars, tried to give it an explanation. The explanation is that Allah wanted them to die. Frederick Barbarossa dies and Ibn al-Athir says Ibn al-Athir is joking and saying the king of the Germans dies in water that doesn't reach your knees. You know, we're not talking about this huge river. He dies in a pool of water. The king of the Germans, Frederick Barbarossa, his name would strike fear. He was the most powerful of the European kings. He dies in a pool of water. Ibn Athir is joking and saying, 
water doesn't even reach your waist. So what happens? Ibn Athir says, and then after the king dies, disease spread among them. And they disunited. By the time they reach to Asham, it is as if they came out of the grave. When you look at them, as if they are dead who came out of the graves. Zombies. Huh? <laughs> That's how they look. Subhanallah. Ibn Kathir says, By the time they reached to Akka, the 300,000 army was brought down to 1,000. Only 1,000 reached to meet Salah al-Din out of 300,000. So who was right? These ulama who ran away or Salah al-Din? There's a letter sent by Barbarossa to Salah al-Din. And I have the letter in Arabic. I need to find the translation for it. He was so arrogant and proud and threatening Salah al-Din and telling him, I'm giving you 12 months to move out your army. Otherwise, this and this would happen. I'll do this to you. And challenging the awliya of Allah. So Allah Azawajal wanted to dishonor him. Wanted to dishonor Barbarossa. He made an oath that he's going to step with his foot on the Holy Land. So when he died, before reaching the Holy Land, his son wanted to take his dead body to the Holy Land in order to fulfill the oath of his father. So they boiled his body in water. And then they stuffed him in a barrel with vinegar. They pickled him. In order to preserve the body, to fulfill the oath. Nevertheless, the body rotted and blew up out of this barrel, so they had to dump the body along the way, and Allah did not even allow him to fulfill his oath by reaching the Holy Land. You want to fight the religion of Allah, this happens to you. Ibn al-Athir says, وَلَوْلَا لُطْفُ اللَّهِ بِهْلَاكِ مَلِكِ الْأَلْمَانِ وَإِلَّا لَكَانَ يُقَالْ إِنَّ الشَّامُ وَمَصْرِ كَانَتَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ If it wasn't for the the lutf of Allah, if it wasn't for the care of Allah for this ummah, by killing the German king, we would be saying today that Egypt and Syria one day were Muslim. He said we would have lost Asham, which is Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Palestine, along with Egypt, and now we would be saying that one day they used to be Muslim. That is how serious this threat was. But Allah wanted to give victory to his servants. So if they send 300,000 or 3 billion, it wouldn't have made a difference. Because Allah wanted to give them victory. So Allah if he wants an end, if he wants to give this ummah victory, he will create for it the circumstances that allow this victory to happen. So we established that the rule is correct. So now let's look at our time today. Number one, history repeats itself. Believe it or not, we are living in a time similar to the time before Salah al-Din. We are living in a time similar to the time before Salah al-Din. So does this mean that what comes next will be the time of Salah al-Din? Let's look at the situation before Salah al-Din. There was disunity among the Ummah. Ibn Kathir says, وَهَا أَمْرُ الْخِلَافَةِ جِدًّا وَاسْتَقَلَّ نُوَابِ الْأَطْرَافِ وَلَمْ يَبْقَ مَعَ الْخَلِيفَةِ حُكْمُ غَيْرِ بَغْدَادِ وَأَمَّا بَقِيَةِ الْأَطْرَافِ Ibn Kathir says, the Khilafah at that time was very, very weak. And every Muslim state was becoming independent. 
And the Khalifa was only ruling over Baghdad. That's all what he was ruling over. Basra was with Ibn Raq, Khuzestan, Abi Abdullah. Persia was with Umad al-Dawla. Karman with Abi Ali bin Muhammad. Al-Mawsil and Al-Jazeera and Diyar Bakr and Mubar al-Rabi'a with Bani Hamdan. Egypt and Asham, uh, Muhammad bin Taj. Africa and Al-Maghrib, Al-Qa'im ibn Al-Mahdi, Khurasan, Wama Wara' Al-Nahr, Yad Nasr Samani. So you can see the disunity of the Ummah. It was similar to the time we're living in today. First point, history repeats itself. And there are times when the Ummah was going through circumstances like the circumstances we're going through, and that was followed by victory for the Ummah. So we shouldn't lose hope and think that since our situation is so bad, there is no no way out for us. No, that's not true. When you reach to the rock bottom, there's no way out of there except to go up again. Unless you reach to the rock bottom, there's no... You can't go any lower. So you must go up. So we're at the lower end of the curve. Ibn Afir says that Al-Andalus was divided into four states. Each state was headed by a man calling himself Amir al-Mu'mineen. He said it became a joke. So this is a state of disunity that might even be worse than the disunity we have today. There was great attachment to power, also similar to the situation of the governments today. Radwan bin Tach al-Siljirpi, he killed his two brothers to rule, and he sought assistance from al-Bataniya. A town called Raha was split between two emirs, one of them sought assistance from the Roman king to help him out. In Qurtuba, in the time of, in the time of Fitna, a man called Umayyah bin Abdurrahman bin Hisham, he uh, took over the palace, I mean not all over Qurtuba, the palace, and he went out the window claiming to be the Amir. So somebody told him, your days, I mean the days of Bani Umayyah are over, you will be killed. He said, give me bay'ah today and kill me tomorrow if you want. Uh, let me be Amir for at least even one day. This one day would be enough for me. There was also this disparity between some, when you have uh, very, very poor people and very, very rich people. We have that today and that also existed in the Ummah at some points. They say that the daughter of a Sultan Malik Shah, her mahr, the gifts that were given to her, were 130 camels loaded with gold and silver. This is for the wedding of the daughter of a sultan. But you have, for example, people who would die because of poverty and they would eat dogs. They ate dogs. And in uh, year 448 Hijri, a man sold his house for 20 pounds of flour. He said, I'll give you my house and you give me 20 pounds of flour. You also had passiveness among the people. The passiveness among the people is not something new to the Ummah. There are phases when the people would be very passive. In year 361, and this is mentioned by Ibn Athir and Al-Kamil, he says that the Roman army attacked Ar-Raha. So a delegation went from Ar-Raha to Baghdad, and uh, they went to the king, Bukhtiyar al-Buwayhi, and they found him busy hunting. So people want you to go and fight jihad fi sabillah, and you're busy hunting. Should be running the affairs of the Ummah and he's busy hunting. And this is not something new. In the US, I remember that uh, I was there when one of the uh, 
kings from the Arab countries went to visit Washington, D.C. And uh, usually when leaders from the Muslim world come to America, the appropriate thing to do is to meet with the Muslim community. So the embassy of that country made an appointment with the leadership of the Muslim community to meet with this king on Tuesday. And it was set in his official schedule that the king will meet you on Tuesday. Monday, the embassy calls and tells the Muslim uh, community that the king is extremely busy on Tuesday, so he apologizes he won't be able to attend the meeting. So they thought maybe he has a special meeting with uh, some big shot in the U.S. or the Congress or something. He's going to beg money or something. You know what they usually do over there. The news came out later that this king, along with his wife, on Tuesday, went to watch four movies in the cinemas. So that's what made them so busy on Tuesday. They were going from one cinema to the other to watch movies. And these, this gives you a picture of who are the people who are running our affairs, the sufaha who are running our affairs today. These are people whom you can't even trust to run your business, to run a store, and they're running countries. And then we say that there are awliya umur, we have to give bay'ah to, and we are not allowed to go against them or speak against them. Anyway, so they went and found the king busy hunting, and then they told him what you're doing is wrong, and fighting, because he was fighting a Muslim king at the time, and fighting the Muslims is wrong, you should be fighting the Romans. He said, Allahu Akbar, let's do jihad fi sabillah, gather money for me. They collected money, they gave it to him, and he used it on his own personal affairs and forgot about jihad fi sabillah. And by the way, today when they collect money for Palestine, you know, they make big mahrajan for, to gather money for Palestine, they end up taking it and using it themselves. It doesn't go to the Mujahideen. Never trust these governments with a penny of your money. Ibn Athir also says that uh, when the crusaders reached to Asham, Al-Qawi Abu Ali ibn Ammar from uh, Tripoli, in Lebanon, Tripoli, Lebanon, uh, went to Baghdad to mobilize the people to come for, to their assistance. Because Baghdad was still considered, even symbolically, as the center of the Khilafah. So that's where they go when they want to seek assistance. So the Qadi went to Baghdad. He gave khutbah in the central mosque in Baghdad, calling the people for jihad fi sabillah. People were very enthusiastic about it. They went to prepare themselves to go and join the Muslim armies. And the Sultan also promised that he's going to send armies. Nothing happened. Nobody went out. And the Qadi goes back to Tripoli to find out that Al-Ubaidin has taken over Tripoli. Al-Ubaidin are Shia. So he even lost his own town. So we shouldn't lose hope if we see the same things happening today. This happened before. And Allah Azza will change it. So that's number one. Number two, Allah Azza is preparing the Ummah for the upcoming stage. When I was young, probably 20 years ago, I had a book called Al-Fitan Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir has an encyclopedia on history called Al-Bidaya wa Nihaya, the beginning and the end. And it's literally that. He talks about history from the beginning, from the creation of the earth, and he goes all the way to the end, Yawm Al-Qiyamah. This chapter which talks about Al-Fitan, the hadith about the end of time was taken out and printed as a separate book called Al-Fitan. And I had this book when I was young and I would read it. When I was reading the book, I felt that subhanAllah, these 
would be wonderful times, but it's going to be very, very far away. Because the hadith talk about certain areas. Obviously, the revival will be a revival of the ummah, but there are certain areas which Rasulullah emphasized and talked about more than others. These areas are Al-Iraq. Rasulullah says that Asa'ib Ahl Al-Iraq will give assistance to Al-Mahdi. Khurasan, which is the present-day Afghanistan and probably some of its surroundings. It says that the black banners will come out of Afghanistan. Asham, and most of the ahadith talk about Asham. And Asham is Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Jordan, and Al-Yaman. These are the areas that the ahadith talk about, and I mentioned to you the ahadith about Adan Abiyah. 20 years ago, when I was reading this book, what was the situation in these four areas? Al-Iraq at the day was a Ba'ath, was a Ba'ath government that was officially secular, officially against religion, and the Iraqi people that I knew of were the furthest away from religion among the Arab people. And they took secularism seriously and they took Ba'ath seriously. They were purely nationalist. I say, uh, subhanAllah, Allah alam when Iraq would change. It would be a long time from now. SubhanAllah. Khurasan. At the time, probably the Afghan jihad didn't start yet, and it was communist. So what good can come out of communism? Afghanistan is communist. And the jihad started around 78, 79, 80. The news started coming out in the early 80s. So that's the second place. Third place is Sham. And the center of Asham is Palestine. And the Palestinians that I knew would curse Allah Azza wa Jal and curse Islam. Yani when they would talk, fi sabb and sabb al-deenak, they would also say al-deenak, curses the religion. And the reputation that they had was that of corruption, drinking, fasad. And Syria was also Ba'ath, Lebanon, yani was called the Paris of the Middle East. The parting zone was Lebanon. When Arabs want to party, they would go to Beirut. And probably you don't remember those days. And we're talking about 20 years ago, Allah Alam, if you're old enough to remember that, or you were following the situation in those countries then. And Al-Yaman, the part of Yemen which the Hadith talks about is the South, Adan Abiyan, and South Yemen was the only communist Arab state in the world. So I would say, yani, victory must be far, far away from now. Forget about it coming in my lifetime. SubhanAllah, within 20 years, look at where we're standing now. The first jihad starts in Palestine. In fact, Palestine is what gave to Shahada its importance in the modern day. The concept of Shahada, the concept of Istishhad, started out in Palestine. In Palestine, Shahada, Istishhad, is a culture. And people celebrate Shahada in Palestine. They celebrate it as a wedding. And when a Shaheed uh, goes and, and gives his life to Allah Azza wa his family would make a tent and uh, they would uh, meet the people who would come and greet them to give congratulations about the Shahada as if he got married. That is Palestine. The people who would be the furthest away and the people who would curse Allah Azza wa and the Deen are the ones who spark this culture of Shahada today. They are the ones who started this issue of what we call Al-Amaliyya Al-Istishhadiyya, martyrdom operation. They are not the ones who invented it, but they are the ones who made it popular. Afghanistan, the land of Khurasan, the communist country, turns into the place of jihad fi sabillah. And we can probably credit every jihad today 
and trace it back to Afghanistan. Any front of jihad today, you would find that it has traces or roots back to Afghanistan, one way or the other. Though the commonest country of Afghanistan, a place where probably you have one of the highest rates of illiteracy in the Muslim world, people who know very little about Islam, so they're not the big shat ulama, they are the ones who start the jihad of the 21st century, of this century. The tajdeed of the jihad was from there. Abdullah Azzam, his ilm spread from Afghanistan. So that's Khurasan. Al-Iraq, who would imagine that Al-Iraq would be a land of jihad? Who would have imagined that a few years ago? The land of Saddam Hussein would turn into a land of jihad. Even the Americans miscalculated it. They thought that they would march into Baghdad and they would be greeted with roses. And subhanAllah, it turns out to be the new jihad front for the Muslim Ummah today and the most important one. The land of Iraq is being prepared by Allah Azza wa The Iraqi people without that 12 year sanctions and without the first Gulf War and without all of this wouldn't have become the new Mujahideen for today. It is the Ba'ath for them. Allah has sent the people of Iraq not one Ba'ath but more than one Ba'ath. Because with the existence of Saddam this couldn't have happened. But Allah Azza took away their leadership. The Americans are the ones who came to take away the leadership. They didn't know the horn's nest that they're, and they didn't know what they're getting their hands into. They are the ones who took away Saddam Hussein to replace him with Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. They got themselves into big trouble, and, and Allah alam, this is the pool that America will drown in. And South Yemen, the communist Arab country, turns into a place where there is an Islamic revival. And this Islamic revival is centered where? In Adanabiyan. The particular place that Rasulullah mentioned in the hadith. So within a very short period of time, within 20 years, all of this is happening. Doesn't this tell us that victory is soon, it's approaching? Doesn't this show us that these particular areas that Rasulullah emphasized and talked about in the hadith are being prepared by Allah for the next stage? Al-Iraq, Al-Sham, Khurasan, and Yemen are being prepared by Allah Azza wa for what's coming next. And what's coming next is Al-Malhama. Because Rasulullah talks about these places in reference to Al-Mahdi and Al-Malhama. Al-Malhama is this epic battle that will occur between the Muslim nation and the Rum. And that will be followed by the global Khilafah. Because now the battle will not be localized. It's, we're living in a global village, right? Therefore, you either lose it all or you win it all. It's not like you can win a localized small battle, rule over that area, and they're going to leave you alone. No. The long arm of American injustice will get you wherever you are. So you either win it all or you lose it all. It's not like before, before this massive air power that has been invented by humanity today. Before, if you take over a mountain, build a powerful castle, you could survive for years and years, decades, probably even centuries, and nobody can come and touch you. But now they're going to send the B-52 and it will wipe you out, along with your castle. So the upcoming battle will be lose it all or win it all. And that is Al-Malhama. So it will be the final battle between Kufr and Iman. And it will be a battle that will give victory to this Muslim Ummah. It's not the end of it, obviously, because still you have a Dajjal and then you have Ya'juj and Ma'juj. But that battle will be the battle that will establish the Islamic Khilafah on a global scale. So... This is an indication that we're 
getting close to those times. Now, if we are getting close to those times, you really, really, really don't want to be sitting on the sidelines and lose out on all of this ajr in this golden era. Because it's a golden era. You know, people would read these ahadith and wish that they would be there. And here you are, living in those times, sitting on the sidelines. Like Abdullah Azam said, the jihad was a market that opened, people made a lot of money, and the market closed. It's not going to last forever. If you sit behind, if you hesitate, if you're reluctant, you're going to miss out. Because the chance only comes once. Also, something else to mention, yes, it's the golden era, but this ajr won't be handed out for free. It would demand a lot. Because it is the greatest status, it would demand the greatest sacrifice. And that's why only the best of the best, the ones whom Allah has chosen, will be able to carry out until the end. Because the fitna will be serious. To give you an indication of how serious the fitna will be, Rasulullah says about this army that will meet the Romans in Al-Malhama. He says that this army, one-third of them, will retreat. Now, keep in mind that these are the best. Because only the believer, only the mu'min will go out to this battle. Nevertheless, one-third of them, right there, are going to retreat. What does Rasulullah say about them? And these are ones whom Allah will not accept their tawbah until they die. They are mu'minun, who went out fi sabillah, mujahideen. They made it to the front line, but because they retreated, their tawbah will not be accepted from Allah until they die. That is how serious the fitna will be. So, to survive in those dangerous times, one needs to have a lot of iman. It's like crossing the empty quarter. It doesn't make a difference if you have half the tank full or three quarters of it full. If you don't have enough and your car breaks down and you didn't reach to your final destination, you're dead. It doesn't make a difference if you have 30% or 50% or 80%. You have to have 100%. Otherwise, you die. Half empty tank is the same as an empty tank. You have to have a full tank of Iman ready for that time because it's a special status, it's a special time. The ajr is so great, so that ajr won't be given except to the ones who are strong. We ask Allah to make us of those if we live into those days. Number three, another indication is that we're getting close. Fundamentalists in the West are on the rise. And religion getting into state affairs is on the rise. The Newsweek wrote an article about Bush and God. And they were quoting some European scholars as saying that the American foreign policy has many different variables or many different objectives in driving it. One of them is religion. One of them is religion. But they were saying that for the first time in American history, we feel that the religious objective could be the main motive behind some of the American foreign policy. Bush told Mahmoud Abbas that God told me to go into Afghanistan. It was God who told me, not Congress, not the American people, not the Constitution. God told me to go into Afghanistan. I went there because it's an order from God. So this is for the first time. Denmark, which is probably one of the most secular 
European countries was the place where the attack of Rasulullah started. And one could have you know, not imagined that a small country like Denmark would be the cause for such a great issue that hasn't ended yet and an issue that would cause the unification of the West against the Muslim Ummah on this issue. The West didn't leave Denmark alone. They supported Denmark on an official level and also the population of the Western countries, it's very apparent, is standing behind what happened in Denmark because the Swedish foreign minister had to resign from her post after she closed down a website that has shown these images. She had to resign because of popular pressure. She lost her job as foreign minister because of this issue. So the West is edging towards fundamentalism when it comes to dealing with the Muslims. It's not like they're becoming religious people suddenly. No, they're not religious people. They're not religious people. They're the furthest away from the teachings of the present day Bible. But they're becoming very religious when it comes to dealing with the Muslims. And then you'll find statements made by respected religious leaders, for example in the US, Franklin uh, Graham, who's the uh, son of Billy Graham, one of the most yeah, well-known evangelists in the US, uh, making statements that Islam is uh, the religion of evil. You have Pat Robertson saying that the Muslims are Ya'juj and Ma'juj, uh, strange statements like this. And there's a, this is on the rise. It's not decreasing, it's rising. So this, this is an indication that we're getting closer to al-malhamah because the psychological preparation for al-malhamah is in place. You know, any battle starts first in the hearts before it gets to the battlefield. There needs to be motivation in the heart first. And this motivation is, is starting to formulate in the West. Number four, before Allah Azawajal establishes the ummah, the ummah has to pass through stations before you get to the final destination. It's like a train ride, and you have to go through station one, station two, station three. There's some stations that the Ummah has to pass through. One of these stations is al ibtila trials and tribulations, tests. Allah says, Allah says, do you think that you will enter into paradise before Allah knows the ones who will fight jihad among you and the ones who will not take other than Allah, Rasulullah and the believers as awliya. So these are two stations that you have to pass through before you enter into Jannah and before you are established on earth. Jihad fi sabillah and wala and bara. So before these two issues become clear, there can be no establishment on earth. The ummah has to fight jihad fi sabillah. And the Ummah has to make it clear that their wala, their loyalty is to Allah, Rasulullah and the believers and that they are disavowing, distancing themselves from shaitan and al-kuffar. So some scholars, some Islamic movements, some Muslims are trying to run away from these two stations but there's no way you can run away from these two stations if you want to get tamkeen. And the test is now happening to the Ummah. Allah Azawajal is testing the Ummah. And we are being placed in situations where we have to make the choice between Iman and Kufr. And this is part of the test. And the test starts from high up and then it goes 
to the lower level. So it starts with the umara wal ulama. It starts with the kings, presidents, and scholars, and then it goes down to the people before them. Now, for the kings, the test has been finished with. They have already chosen al-kuffar. Allah alam, I think that all of the results have already been handed out. Now al-ulama are going through the test. They are being tested. You are either with us or against us. Bush is putting them to the test. And he is appointing their kings and presidents who are nothing but police officers for Bush to do the job for him. You are either with us or against us. You have to make a choice. You can't play in between. Stand on both sides of the fence. You can't anymore. Now you have to make the choice. Ten years ago, yeah, you can. You can give a very nice khutbah about jihad fi sabillah and then go and have dinner with the king and there's, there's no problem. But now you can't play both roles anymore. You have to make it clear who are you with. So that gray area is disappearing. And that's why Rasulullah said, فُسْطَاتْ iman لَا نِفَاقَ kufr Rasulullah said this test will carry on until the two camps are completely separate. A camp of Iman with no nifaq and a camp of kufr with no Iman. Now things are mixed up. There can be no establishment for the Ummah until that mix, mixing up is cleared up. Sayyid Qutb mentions in his Dhulal al-Quran, he says that Allah does not give the Anbiya establishment on earth until it becomes clear who is with him and who is against him. It doesn't happen when things are mixed up. So now the Ummah needs to be separated into Mu'min and Munafiq. And Allah has destined that Bush will be part of the test. And he's the one who's putting people to the test on one side. And the Mujahideen are putting the Ummah to the test on the other side. So you have now both the Mujahideen on one side and Bush on the other side. And everyone is attracting people towards their camp. And that is what the Americans call the battle of the mind and heart. It is really the battle between Haqq and Batil. And it's the battle between Maskar al-Iman and Maskar al-Kufr. This ayah, Allah says, وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا فَإِنَّ حِزْبَ اللَّهِ هُمُ الْغَالِبُونَ The one who takes Allah, Rasulullah, and the believers as awliya, then the party of Allah will be victorious. So the party of Allah cannot be victorious until this issue of wala is clear. The wala to the believers. So, you need to recap. Um, I mentioned that if Allah Azza wants an end, He would create for it its means. Uh, we mentioned three proofs to this rule. Ba'ath, and we mentioned what happened in Persia, and then an example from the time of Salah al-Din. Now, we, we said that history repeats itself. That was number one. And then uh, number two, Allah is preparing particular areas. And number three, that fundamentalism is on the rise in the West. And number four, the Ummah has to pass through stations towards establishment. Actually, I would want to close with this hadith. We all agree that we have a problem now. Everyone in the Ummah says that the Ummah is suffering from a problem. There's something wrong. But we defer on the solution. And... We should have no difference of opinion when we have Qur'an and Sunnah with us. We should have no difference when the answer is in Qur'an and Sunnah. So what's the solution for our problem now? The solution is given in a hadith by Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
وتركتم الجهاد في سبيل الله صلت الله عليكم ذلا لا ينزع عنكم حتى تراجعوا دينكم If you trade with Ina and if you follow the tales of cows and you are satisfied with agriculture and you leave jihad fi sabilillah Allah azza wa jal will humiliate you and that humiliation will not be lifted until you go back to your religion This hadith tells us about the problem and the solution The interesting thing is that the problem that is mentioned in the hadith some Muslims today say it is a solution Now what's the problem? Rasulullah says when you're busy with business and agriculture and livestock and you leave jihad fi sabilillah you will be humiliated Some Muslims say that the only way this ummah can be victorious if, is if we follow the way of the other nations industry and agriculture and trade then we will become like them and we will become victorious So if we're successful in business, if we're successful in agriculture, if we're successful if we, you know, technology and all, that is the way for the Ummah. Rasulullah says this is the problem. When you're busy with business, you follow the tales of cows, you're busy with livestock, with farming and, and the rest of it. And you're satisfied with agriculture. You have a piece of land and you're cultivating it and that's it. You don't care about what's happening in the world around you. And you leave jihad. Then Allah Azza will humiliate you. Some Muslims say that the way forward for the Ummah is to distance itself from terrorism and to spend their time in becoming good in business, good in technology and agriculture and the rest. And uh, that is how we can compete with the rest of the world. Rasulullah says that is false, that is wrong. And Allah will dishonor us if we do that. And then Rasulullah says, and there's no way out for you except if you go back to your deen. Now, the commentators on the hadith say that going back to your deen here means going back to jihad fi sabillah specifically. Because Rasulullah says, وَتَرَكْتُمُ jihad, You left jihad. Then the only way you can go back to your religion is if you go back to jihad fi sabillah. So jihad becomes equal to the religion. So this is the solution. The solution for the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu to change its situation today is in Jihad fi Sabilla. One of the Salaf, and this is, has been mentioned by Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, they told him, how come you don't uh, get yourself a farm for you and your family? He said, Allah Azza has sent me to kill the farmer and take his farm. Umar ibn Khattab when he heard that the Sahaba were busy with cultivating the very fertile land, that they won through Ghanima, through Jihad fi Sabilla in Jordan. He waited until the time of harvest. And then he ordered that all of the farms be burned down to the ground. So the Sahaba came complaining. He said, this is the job of Ahl al-Kitab, the people of the book. Your job is to go and fight Jihad fi Sabilla and spread the religion of Allah. Leave the farming to the people of the book. You go and spread the religion of Allah Azza They'll farm and they're going to feed you. They're going to pay jizya. They're going to pay kharaj. Because Rasulullah said that my rizq is through ghanima. So if the rizq of Rasulullah is through ghanima, it must be the best rizq. It must be better than business and better than farming and better than shepherding and better than anything else. Because Rasulullah says, Ju'la rizqi rumhi. My rizq comes from under my spear. So the solution for the ummah, and that's why there was an interview with uh, the spokesman of Al-Jaysh al-Islami in Iraq, the Islamic army in Iraq. They said, what is your financial source. He said, our financial source is Al-Ghanima. But we don't mind 
if Muslims are going to give us donations. But we're not going to be beggars. We're going to finance our jihad fi sabillah from ghanimah. So the solution for the ummah, the solution for the ummah is jihad fi sabillah. When the ummah revives this ibadah, it's ironical. Subhanallah, jihad fi sabillah is an irony. Jihad fi sabillah, people run away from it. Why? Because they see that it's a loss of money and it's also a loss of self. And you could lose your life and you could lose your wealth in jihad fi sabillah. The irony is that when the ummah fights jihad fi sabillah, the ummah becomes the wealthiest. And when the ummah is fighting jihad fi sabillah, the least of this ummah die. If we're going to draw yani, a graph of how many Muslims die when they fight jihad fi sabillah and how many Muslims die when they leave jihad fi sabillah, you would find that when the Muslims are fighting jihad fi sabillah, very few die. And when they leave jihad fi sabillah, they die in millions. Millions of Muslims die when they leave Jihad Fisabillah. If we're going to draw a curve of the financial situation of the Ummah, you find that the Ummah becomes the wealthiest in the times of Jihad Fisabillah and they become the poorest when they leave Jihad Fisabillah. The Islamic State is unique in history. It was the only state in history that did not tax its population. Why it didn't tax its population? Because it had income that came from Jizya, and this comes through Jihad Fisabillah, Kharaj, which is the tax on the land. Uh, that's taken from uh, the disbelievers, and that's from Jihad Fisabillah, and then there's Ghanima, and then there's Fay. All of these are sources of income that come from Jihad, so the government does not have to tax the population anymore. But now, because the Muslim Ummah is not fighting Jihad Fisabillah anymore, they end up taxing the population. And Rasulullah says that taxes are haram. Taxes in Islam are haram. It's not only something that they do, it's haram. And the one who, who deals in, in any job that relates to taxes is mal'oon, is cursed. So this is the solution. This is the solution. The solution is right there. It just needs people to wake up and read the simple hadith and follow its meaning. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam,